So this morning, we're talking about what is Easter all about, and we're probably going to skip past the Easter Bunny stuff and all of those things and explaining that. And since we're at church, I think we'll talk a little bit about Jesus. That'd be all right? So what is Easter all about? Why did Christ come? Why did he do these things? What was the point of all this? And what, what parts of these stories do we remember and what parts are really real and, and, and are we missing a bunch of details? God is righteous. God is holy. God is love. He loves you. He wants to be with you. He wants to fellowship with you. He wants to talk to you. And he wants to spend eternity with you. That is God's one true desire is you, period. But there's one problem, and that's sin. Sin cannot be in the presence of God. Sin cannot be in heaven. And even if a sinner were to get into heaven, they'd be miserable because of the righteousness and the holiness. It'd be a wretched place for a sinner. You wouldn't even want to go there if you could as a sinner. It's like oil and water. You just can't mix the two. You can't mix God and sin together. And sin, if you want to define it, is basically any time that we violate God's law or we break his law, or if we willingly ignore to do one of his commandments, we sin. Did you know that one of God's commandments is to not speak falsely to your neighbor? Has anybody in here not lied before? So it's as simple as that. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned. Romans 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So even though God's one true desire is to be with you, spend time with you, fellowship with you, and have you welcome you into heaven for eternity, he can't because of our sins. He just can't. And sin comes with a price. Acts of sin have to be paid for. It's just like if you break a law here on earth, you have to pay the price for doing that. If you're caught speeding, you'll be given a fine, and you have to pay that ticket. If you murder someone, there's a good chance that that price you're going to have to pay is your own life to pay back for the things you've done wrong. And sin is the same way. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So if we sin and we sow to unrighteousness, we're going to reap from that sin, and it's going to cause havoc in our lives. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Sin has separated us from God. It's like a wall has been put up keeping us from God and keeping us from true life, life eternal. That sin, the wage of that is death. Yes, it brings physical death. Yes, sin can bring sickness and disease, but ultimately sin brings spiritual death and we are unable to go to heaven and unable to receive that from God, that eternal life. Even if you were to never sin again, you would still be guilty and deserving of judgment and punishment of your past sins. So what can we do about this sin problem? How can we fix this? Us personally, there's nothing we can do. 
There's no way you can go back into the past and undo your wrongs. They're done. It is done, and the price has to be paid for those things. But because God is love, and God does love you, and God wants to fellowship with you, he wants to spend eternity with you, he made a way. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He made a way. Yes, we were stuck and we had no way out, but he made a way to fix that. And that way is, is Jesus Christ. John 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent his only son, Jesus, to this world to pay the price for our sins and to make a way for us to be able to be at peace with God, to live with God, and to avoid the punishment of going to hell and being able to go to heaven and spend eternity with God at peace with him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, Who himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Because Jesus loves you so much, he paid the price for your sins, setting you free from that judgment. And it's not just your sins. It's not just my sins. It's for the sins of the whole world. Every mistake, grand and small, was put on Jesus' back from the beginning of time, from Adam himself, when he sinned in the garden, every sin that was committed by every person, all the way up to this point, even today and in the future, even the mistakes you're going to do in the future, have been placed upon his back. And that judgment, that punishment, for each one of those sins, individually, was put upon him. And he paid the price for that sin. He paid the wages of that. 1 John 2, 2 says, And he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the entire world. Every sin was paid for at the cross. So this morning, we want to look at that and talk about that. Because I think, we think, yeah, I know what Jesus, you know, he got, he went and got whipped. A crown of thorns was put on his head. They kind of beat him up and abused him. And then he went on the cross and died for my sins. And we think about that, but there's so much detail to that, so much price that was paid that we don't even realize what price he truly paid. The cost of all of those sins was extremely expensive. And he paid the price for that. So this morning, I want to show you exactly what that's talking about and the different things that Jesus did for you and I upon that cross and and leading up to that cross. So you don't have to turn there. Let me just read to you this morning. But we're going to look from Matthew 27. And we're going to start in verse 26. Basically, Jesus was going around doing good, preaching about the kingdom to come and how he was the king, how he was the son of God. 
And the Jewish leaders of that day didn't care for it much because they were pulling their disciples away from them and they were going after Jesus because they identified him as the coming one, the Christ. So they plotted and schemed to be able to take this guy down and get him out of the way so they could get things back to normal and have church as normal, if you want to call it that. So they finally had enough stuff, they thought, against Jesus to bring enough charges against him to get him locked up. So they went and they arrested him, and they brought him before the chief priest or the high priest at that time, and they were looking for false witnesses. Well, long story short, they didn't need it because they finally flat out asked Jesus, are you the son of God? Are you the coming one? And he said, yes. And they said, blasphemy. In other words, you're just full of it. You're trying to make yourself like God, and we won't put up with it. So because of Jewish tradition in that day, they couldn't exactly kill somebody, especially with the ceremonies that was going on. But what he had done was deserving a death, and they wanted to see to it that he was put to death. So they took him over to Pilate, and Pilate was a Roman leader that day, one of the kings of that day, and they took him to him so that he could carry out the judgment. And they made all their accusations against Jesus in front of Pilate, and they told him what it was. Pilate took Jesus to the side and questioned him himself. Couldn't find anything wrong with the guy. Couldn't find anything to accuse him of, but the crowd was absolutely livid. They were so mad and fumed up and full of rage, they wanted to see justice brought right there, right then. So Pilate, trying to appease the crowd, thought, well, I'll have him scourged, and then maybe they'll leave it alone because they were wanting him crucified. And in those days, crucifixion was one of the worst ways to be put to death. Some readings will even read that people would have preferred suicide any day over going through crucifixion. And understand, back then, suicide was not a common thing and was not looked upon very good. And so to go to the cross in crucifixion was needing a pretty deserving judgment, and Pilate couldn't find it. So he thought he would just have him scourged, but then we think that's the whipping part, no big deal. Well, I want to kind of show you the scourging process and what Christ went through. They would have what they called a scourging post, and that's this here. And obviously it would be attached to the ground, but it's about a two-foot-high post with a ring on the top. And they would bind your hands together at your wrist with a shackle on there and strap you to that and pull you out on the ground. It limited your ability with your hands up above your head to be able to move and dodge and get out of the way and, and, and miss the blows. The scourging process, see, the Romans... They took great pride in their ability to torture people. It was something that they took great pride in and and mastered over time in how to do it. And the reason the scourging came about was they took criminals that were usually trying to exalt themselves against government and rise up against government, and they would use the scourging process to eliminate that problem. They say that even those, just the mere threat of a scourging was often enough to quiet a rioting crowd because the word scourging back then, they knew what it meant, and it was enough to shut them down because they did not want to go through that process. Just the mere threat of a person or the the mere uh, intensity of knowing you're about to get scourged when you've been locked to this thing and you're down there, it would cause your body to completely tense. Your mouth would even become tight. You would be locked up, cold sweat kind of thing, fearing that first blow as it comes. And here's the reason why. 
it wasn't just a simple whip that they used then. You know, we think about a whip like a cowboy uses maybe to herd cattle or something like that. Their scourge looks something like this. It has a wooden handle with 18 to 24-inch leather straps coming off of it. And on the end of those straps are metal, wire, glass, and sharp pieces of bone. And I can assure you that if you were looking at that and you knew that was just about to hit you, you would be terrified. Because not only does it just whip you, but because of the sharp hunks that are in there, it embeds into your skin to the point where when they struck that thing on the victim, they had to pull it back off. And as they did, they would rip hunks of flesh away. And it was their joy to see how much they could pull off in a strike. And it wasn't just on the back only. When they did the scourging process, they completely stripped naked the person that was about to be scourged. That way nothing was protected and nothing was protected and and saved from the weapon of the scourge. They would hit the body over and over again, the back, the legs, the face. They would wrap it around, and it would wrap around and snag the front side, and they could pull that back, laying them wide open. In some of the readings that talk about scourging process, they said you could see the spine when they were done. If they weren't stopped in time, eventually they would rip them open to the point where too much blood was lost. They would go to cardiac arrest, have a heart attack because way too many fluids and blood were being pumped to try to get to those portions of the body that were losing too much blood. There were even some who were hit so hard and so many times as it wrapped around the torso that their uh, bowels would spill out. It was a horrible, gruesome, ugly process. And that is what Jesus went through. The Jews believed 40 strikes, 40 times you could hit someone. And they even backed it off to 39 for fear of the count and the fear of that the 40th blow would be fatal to a man, could be fatal to a man. And the whole scourging process wasn't necessarily to put someone to death. It was to teach them a lesson and to teach others a lesson. Don't mess with the government. But the Romans, they didn't care. They didn't have a 40-count rule. So who knows how many times he was struck and how many times this vicious weapon was laid across his back, his torso, his legs, his face. And as I go through this stuff today, if you're unable to see, I encourage you, I don't care if you've got to get up and move around, that is perfectly fine just to see what's going on because some of this stuff will be down on the floor. But Then it goes on to say, it says that, that Pilate, and when he had, him scor- had scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. So then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. Now a garrison or a cohort is a group of soldiers, roughly 300 to 600 men. Minimum 300, but it could be up to 600 soldiers took Jesus into this praetorium or an open area inside the the uh, kingdom of the castle area there. Verse 28, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Nudity in those days, especially in the Jewish culture, was extreme shame. So they stripped him down completely nude in in front of 300 to 600 guys 
And then they put a scarlet robe on him. Well, what's that about? Back in those days, scarlet was representat- a representation of, of a king or, or one in leadership. And so out of mockery, they took an old robe, probably of pilots, who knows, maybe the, one of the guards knew where one of the old ones was, and brought it out and put it on him in a sense of mockery. Then it goes on to say, when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his heads and a reed in his hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him, they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off and put on his own clothes and led him away to be crucified. So they twisted a crown of thorns. And we can think a crown of thorns, maybe like a rose bush. It's got little half-inch thorns. No, it's a vicious crown of thorns. This thing's got one-inch to three-inch thorns on it, and they are deadly sharp. They pressed that into his head and put it on top and shoved it down on his head. There is no way that that didn't drive all the way through the flesh and basically drag along the skull, tearing the flesh as it went down upon his head. So it wasn't just a little crown of thorns that they placed on there, but his head was torn wide open and blood would have been running down his face and all around his head. Then they took a reed and they put it in his hand, which a reed represented like the staff. So more than likely, one of the uh, guards there thought this picture of a kingdom isn't just quite right, this picture of a king. He needs a staff. So they ran over to one of the ponds there, pulled out a reed, and put it in his hand. So he's laying there with his, sitting there with his robe, old, worn, thrown-out robe, with a crown of thorns on his head and a reed in his hands, mocking the king of the kings, the king of the Jews. And each one went before him, and bowed down before him, mocking him, would take the reed from his hand and smack him on the head upon that crown of thorns. And then they would spit in his face out of pure mockery. And you think, that's nasty. That's not right. 300 to 600 soldiers did this. You can't tell me if 300 people spit in your face, you're not literally drenched in spit, which is just pure mockery, and, and, and rubbing in his face what he went through and what he did and who they said he was and wasn't. Little did they know they were bowing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the last scripture there says, And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put on his own clothes, and led him away to be crucified. Again, we talked about this. The crucifixion process wasn't just a simple tap a few nails to the cross and hang a guy up, but it was one of the most dreaded, feared things because they knew what it represented. From wherever the punishment was given that the person was going to be crucified, they were required to carry their own cross to the place where they were actually crucified. Uh, 
on average, they'd weigh about 100 pounds. So can you imagine, after being scourged with that thing and ripped wide open, put a scarlet robe on your back long enough for 300 to 600 soldiers to come by, bow before you, smack you on the head and spit you in the face, and then they take that robe and tore it back off of him. You can't tell me that that didn't dry with the dried blood and, and, and basically adhere to his skin. And they tore that back off, put his clothes back on, and then let him out to be crucified. With your back torn wide open, would you want to pick that thing up and carry it and drag it behind you and move it along? But that's what they did, and they eventually had to get him some help. I can only imagine. I have no idea how at this point any physical being can hardly move and function and go forward. But they took him up to the place where they were going to crucify him, and then they would prepare to do that. They would use five-inch nails, and they would drive those five-inch nails through the hand or through the wrist. Generally, it was through the wrist because it was a stronger hold, and it wouldn't give way when they would put the body up there and let it hang. So they would drive, lay them out flat on there. Imagine again, your back being all torn to shreds, laid across this cross, and then spread out, and then nails to be driven in and through your wrist. And then they would take the feet and lay them on top of each other and then arch the feet up a bit or the knees, bent at the knees a little bit to be able to get the feet flat onto the tree. And so they were standing on top of each other and flat on the tree with a bend in the knee. And I'll explain why. And then a nail was driven through both feet and into the tree. guys mind standing that up over there? After you were nailed to the cross, they would raise that thing up. And there was different styles of crosses and different styles of, of crucifixions. But for the most part, they would be raised up and then dropped into a hole to support the cross up as, again, part of the shaming process of being left out there and being publicly humiliated for all to see. When that cross would drop down into the hole, it would create a severe jarring motion, which would be extremely painful on the feet and on the wrist or the hands where the nails will pierce through. The reason they put you in that position with the feet up a little bit is so you can slink down. And as that process happens, it creates a pinching on the lungs, and it makes it hard to breathe. And the way you needed to catch your breath or to get a good breath of air is you would have to put all your weight on that nail going through your feet and press yourself up to get a gasp of air. And then when the pain became so unbearable that you couldn't hold yourself up no more, back down you went and, and slamming on your wrist. Eventually, over time, it would pull your elbows out of socket 
pull your shoulders out of socket. They'd say some accounts were even there where the arms became nine inches longer than they were supposed to. And through that process, there's got to be horrible cramps taking place in the arms, painful cramps in the arms for that extreme stretching process that's taking place. And as time went on, the strength would go out, and you couldn't hardly lift yourself up on your feet no more, and you would hang there, and, and asphyxiation would take place. The lungs and the heart would struggle to keep up, and, and fluids would begin to fill the lungs, and they'd become asphyxiated. And eventually, they would no longer be able to hold themselves up or fight against it, and they would eventually suffocate and die through the process. But it wasn't like it took 10 minutes. It usually took to the point where it didn't happen the first day. So they would break the legs of the criminal so they could go home for the night and knew that they couldn't run away and they no longer could lift themselves up so the asphyxiation process sped up. Jesus didn't make it that far. They didn't have to break his leg because of the extreme blood loss and, and fluid loss. He was already to the point where it did not take as long for the asphyxiation process to happen, but it's recorded of over three hours of hanging on that cross. So why all of this? Why go through all of this and do all of this? It's hard to imagine someone bearing all of this, but there was a price that had to be paid, and that was our sins. The things we've done wrong, the things we've done against God, the things we just knew weren't right and we did them anyway, it had to be paid for. And because he went through this and he bled for us, it didn't just cover those sins. It doesn't just hide those sins, but it eliminates those sins. If we accept and believe not just some story about Jesus Christ, but the truth of what truly took place that day, and what he did for us, our sins can and will be eradicated. And we can be in perfect right standing with God. No shame, no sorrow, nothing to hide. It's done and it's over with. But it don't end there. That's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the events that took place that day. After he had died, they took his body off of the cross. And, and Joseph, a guy that was there who had, a, had a, a, a tomb carved out of stone. There was like a rocky hillside, if you want to call it that, and they had a tomb carved out of it. Offered that up to be the grave for Christ. And they put his body in there. They did the process of embalming and, and all those things to, to preserve the body. And they put it in this tomb, and they rolled a giant stone in front of that tomb. And... The Jews were so afraid that somebody was going to come steal that body because when he was alive, he spoke of how three days and he would rise again. So they had soldiers standing there guarding that tomb, and they put the seal of Pilate upon that tomb. But I don't care. Nothing was going to hold back the power of our God to resurrect Jesus Christ, making a way for our sins to be eradicated and us to be able to be resurrected just as Christ, and to be able to live with God and in right standing with God. And sure enough, the third day came, and there was a quake. The earth shook. It was not like it was just a 
thunder type shake. It was a literal earthquake. The earth shook when the power of God entered that tomb and the resurrecting life and power of God went into the body of Jesus Christ and ripped him out of that grave. Nothing was going to stop God from fixing our sin problem. Nothing was going to stop him from getting to be able to go back to what he originally designed, and that's to have you as family, as a friend, not just a servant. He don't need servants. He don't want servants. He wants you to serve him because you love him. And now, because of what Christ did and because of the love that God showed by sending his only son to die on the cross for us and to pay that price, because of that love, we now can love him. Because he first loved us, we can now love him the way that he designed it. So if you're here today and you've got sin hanging over your head and you've got things that you know aren't right and you want to get rid of that and deal with that, this is the answer. This is the only thing that can fix that and make that right. Maybe you've never heard this story before and maybe you've heard bits and pieces of it but never realized the price that he paid for your sins and for my sins. If that's you here today, I want you to know that because of this, there is a way. That is the way. We can now be in fellowship with God. We can now eradicate our past. We can now live without a guilty conscience at all, wiped clean. We can stand holy before God, stand righteous before God. And that's all because Christ made a way. The Bible instructs us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that Christ not only was put to death, but God raised him again from the dead. Easter Sunday raised him from the dead. If we believe that and we confess it with our mouths, we will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from our sins, saved from the judgment that we deserve because of our sins and the things we've done wrong. We're saved from that. And not only saved, but we get a guaranteed ticket to heaven. It's the way to fix our sin problem. So I want everybody here today, bow your head and close your eyes. If you have never met Christ before and given your life to him and eradicated that sin problem and and put yourself in a position to be at peace with God, today is your opportunity. Or maybe you have done that in the past, but things haven't exactly panned out so right lately and you've kind of slipped away from that. Well, that's all right too because God still loves you. He always has. And he always will no matter what you do. But don't let pride and don't let fear of man or someone else in his room or whatever it might be keep you from taking that today. Keep you from getting right with God today. So if you're here today, everybody's got their eyes closed and their heads bowed. This is between me 
and you and God. I want you to be bold, and I'm going to count to three here in a second. I want you to be bold and to put your hand up and acknowledge that that's me today, and I need that today. So on the count of three, one, two, three. Okay, those of you that raised your hands, you can put your hands down. Now, with your eyes closed, there are some of you here, I know that your gut is turning right now. And literally, your very being is shaking because you know that you need this and that you need to deal with this today. You don't know when it's too late. If you die before you do this, it's too late. And you never know when that day is coming. So I want to encourage you, don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. So I'm going to count to three one more time and give you one more opportunity. One, two, three. Just put your hand in the hair if that's you. Amen. Okay, everybody, you can look up at me. Many of you are born again and have given your life to Christ and are walking in that and thank God for that, right? But I just want you to see and to take away with you the price that he paid for that. It wasn't just a simple small thing, but he paid the ultimate price for your sins. So let's take that and let's live a life that glorifies him that edifies him, that exalts him. And let's take this and recognize that he didn't do that just for you, but he did that for those other people that you know that are not born again. So let's pray this morning. And we're going to all pray this together, a prayer of salvation. And as you pray this, this is confessing Christ as your Lord. This is receiving what he has done and accepting that, and from this day forward, you are born again. Your sins, in God's eyes, never happened. He has wiped them clean. And guess what? You're going to walk out of here and screw up again, but you don't need to start all over. You can just go to God and say, you know what? I screwed up. Forgive me, and turn away from that thing, and he will forgive you. He promises to do that, and he will maintain your righteous status. So everybody, let's just pray together. Heavenly Father... I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and what he endured for me from the scourging to the crown to the mockery and to the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price that my sins deserved. Thank you, Jesus. For your blood, which wipes away my sins. I declare you as Lord and Savior. And this day, I move forward with a desire to serve you, to bless you, and to share with others about you. What you've done for me what you've done for them. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time ever, that's, that's all there is to it. It has nothing to do 
with having to attend church X amount of times or to belong to a certain church. It has to do with Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, I encourage you, go to church. Learn more. There is so much more. That is just the beginning of what God has done for you and for you and I both. He has so many more promises that he will give you, and you you just need to find out, like maybe you just found out about what Christ has done for us. So I encourage you to get hooked up with a church. If it's not this one, get hooked up with a church and allow someone to teach you about the things of God. Get a hold of a Bible and start reading, and God will bless you, and you'll realize how much more beyond just salvation he has done for you. And then tell somebody else about it. (laughs) That's the whole point, the whole goal. Don't just keep it to yourself. So those of you that have been born again, I encourage you. You've seen what he did for you. And he did that for your coworker, for your neighbor, for your family members. So I encourage you, speak up and allow God to use you to share the gospel of Christ with them. Amen? Amen. Amen.